Welcome to Beyond Barriers. Uh, tonight's, uh, my, well, my co-host tonight is Acacia Dietz, and our special guest is Tim Zoll. Tim, welcome to the program. Howdy. Nice to have you. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and, and uh, just explain what you do. I, I know, you know, uh, to preface this, Tim is a former. He's been out for a really long time. Uh, if you could uh, tell us a little bit about that and uh, a little bit about your story. Uh, um, that'd be great. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, well, uh, I was born here in Southern California and um, I was the baby of the family. I have uh, three older siblings, quite a bit older than me. Um, so for me, you know, I, I think it, it makes a difference, but uh, for me, Growing up in the family dynamic that I did, it was a uh, middle-class upbringing. However, my f my grandparents were not were not middle-class at all, and my father had come up basically from from the working class, and his way of dealing with the family was financially. So he was very uh, financially driven. Um, and I believe that was due to the instability of, of his childhood in Canada. And he moved here when he was 17 years old and worked a lot. He was not around um, very much. His way of providing was roof over your head, shoes on your feet, clothing, things of that nature. Um, me being the baby of the family, you know, I was... I don't know, hyperactive as a little kid. Um, but I didn't get in trouble that much. And the reason I didn't get in a lot of trouble was because my, especially my sisters would shield me from, you know, getting in trouble. If I did something wrong, they'd hide me in the closet, hide me under the bed or do, do whatever. And, and um, you know, I was a cute little kid. Um, now, since my, dad was working all the time mom was stay at home for for the most part um but my brother became sort of my positive role model i guess and um i wanted to be just like him and you know this was the late 60s early 70s with the pot smoking and things like that and i wanted to be just like him and he also got involved with uh, motorcycles and motorcycle clubs and things like that. So I thought my brother was a big bad, you know, like a hell's angel or something. Yeah. So when I grew up, when I got a little bit older, um, I wanted to be a, a biker um, because that seemed cool and tough guy sort of mentality. Um, my father, because of his drive to succeed financially ended up making a lot more money and the neighborhood that we were living in started to become less of a middle-class neighborhood and more of a working-class neighborhood. So there was a lot of diversity, uh, predominantly Hispanic uh, families moving into the area and we moved. And one of the main reasons what I remember was 
property value and, and things like that were going down, so we moved. Ironically, we moved maybe a mile, a little over a mile, but the difference between uh, the two communities was huge. Mm -hmm. uh, the new community that we moved into was uh, predom predominantly homogeneous white community, whereas the older neighborhood was, you know, becoming overrun, at least in my mind, it, it was overrun uh, with the Hispanic folks. And, you know, the neighborhood that we moved into was a double cul-de-sac. Everybody belonged to the same church. Some of my family members got involved with that church. I even got, you know, just socially involved with, with the church. And there was a lot of strict um, beliefs uh, that for whatever reason, I just, you know, I mean, look, I got tattoos. I was smoking cigarettes. I was drinking soda pop and, and things like that. And it wasn't, it wasn't something that you did. Uh, my brother and my sisters as well, being raised in and going to high school in, in the older community, they had a totally different upbringing than I did. Um, again, it was more multicultural, more diverse, and my upbringing was totally different. And my brother, most of my brother's friends were in the older area. And when I was about 11 years old, uh, he got shot by a black man. And my recollections of the, of the events are totally different than the truth. <laughs> Um, yeah. My perception was that my brother was and his friends were standing on a street corner and this black guy drove up in a Volkswagen bug and was asking them for directions. Now, in my mind, you know, I think my brother's this big, bad, hippie, biker type guy. I'm thinking, yeah, right. They're probably selling drugs or, or something like that. Um but it wasn't the case. Um, I have had that cleared up with my brother, but for years, even when I, when I do presentations, I would talk about, you know, my perception, which was totally different. Um, but this guy shot my brother and, and shot at his friends. My brother was shot in the heart. Didn't kill him. Um, wow. He does still have the bullet in his body. It uh, was too close to his spinal cord to be removed. Wow. But for me, and, and I think it's probably a family trauma mm -hmm. situation, but I do remember things changed after that um, regarding African-American people in particular. I remember my mother talking about the perpetrator as, as being, you know, using the N-word. Um, and she also said he had, he had a record or a rap sheet as long as your arm. And I'll, I'll never forget that. It's just the visual on that is, is odd. But um, ironically, my brother was able to forgive the man that shot him. Wow. Uh, but for me, it was a totally different animal. Mm -hmm. uh, I took that into my teen years. Uh, by the time I got into middle school, my mother went back to work. 
and I pretty much had the run of the house until mom and dad got home. But the thing was, you know, here I was in this middle-class neighborhood, and as much as I tried, I, for whatever reason, didn't identify with those people. Uh, they were too uppity for me. Uh, you know, this is the late 70s, early 1980s. Um, you know, I went from trying to be the, the long-haired hippie kid, uh, biker, but that changed. Uh, my brother had a, a friend of his who had passed away, uh, one of his roommates, and I went to his house, and he was getting his belongings from the house, and the brother of the deceased roommate uh, there was some sort of argument over property and, and things that my brother uh, said that his roommate was going to leave to him. And this guy picked my brother up and shook him around like a, like a rag oh, doll. Wow. And, and that, so that blew my image of my brother being the big, big bad biker. Um, and around that same time, I was starting to get in, involved with stoners and the long-haired kids and sneaking off at, at school and smoking pot and drinking and things like that. And this is probably 1978, 79. I uh, got turned on to something called punk rock. And uh, in the late 70s, early 1980s, it's not like, today you know where you have green day and all these sort of poppy punk bands this is hardcore los angeles area the southern california area was notorious for the violent punk scene and you know i went from being a long-haired kid to being a, a one of three punk rockers at, at my high school and um i was a total outcast it was it was total taboo back then i had safety pins in my cheek um you know i thrived on negative attention because i didn't like the people i was around i didn't like the the cheerleaders i didn't like the the jocks and and that sort of thing um so the for me it was a great outlet because we were very underground. Uh, it was my tribe. Uh, it was very violent. It wasn't necessarily racist. You know, there was a lot of left-wing sort of activity in, in the punk scene, still is. But the difference between these days and back then was, you know, Nazi punks, as, as they called them. And it was more for shock value. But Nazi punks would come into the nightclub and there'd be maybe 10 or 15 of them against 200 people, maybe more at some time. And they would give them a very wide berth. They would go in there. They would get in the middle of the, of the mosh pit or the slam pit and just start cleaning up. Um, into my late teens, uh, I started, you know, after living this lifestyle and being involved with the violence for me, I mean, I'm not a tough guy, but I look tough. Um, 
and I was expected to behave a certain way because people told me, oh, you're crazy, you do crazy things. So I thought that I had to live up to that persona. But along with that also came drinking and, uh, you know, some other substances to the point where I was that guy. I was that guy who was sloppy. You know, I would start out okay and funny and then things would, would sort of change and I would turn into that sloppy guy. And then after the sloppy Tim, the violent Tim would, would come out and I would try to pick fights with anybody and anybody. I didn't care how big they were. If I got knocked on my butt, which is more often than not, actually, um, I would just go for it. Um, into my early, early 20s, most of my punker friends were growing up. They were, you know, getting jobs, going to university, getting married, buying houses, having kids. Um, the military thing was, I had quite a few friends who, who had joined the military. We had uh, bombed Libya, I think, at that time, like 1983. Um, and I was already people had already identified me as Tim, the fascist. Cause they were so, Oh, I like socialism. And I was like, no, I'm a fascist where that came from. You know, I could go back to my brother being shot by an African American. It was fear-based and it was a, um, a defense mechanism for me. It was my way of keeping people at bay. Yes. I started hanging out with Nazi punks. Uh, but they compared to organized hate groups, they, it was just wasn't the same. There was a group of skinheads in, in my hometown. They were called the order uh, skins and they, you know, they partied, they took drugs and, and things like that, but they were white power. Now I would hang out with them um, and I would laugh at their jokes and all the racial uh, epithets and things like that, but I, I didn't um, identify with them as much as I did later, probably because of the age difference. They were like a couple years younger than me. Um, I did try to join the military, uh, but when I was about eight years old, I was uh, struck by a, a moving vehicle and uh, broke my hip. And so when I tried to join the military, they wouldn't they wouldn't accept me because of that. They, they saw that my future wasn't so great in the military and they didn't want to spend a bunch of money on medical bills later. So that was a big letdown. Um, after the military, how I felt about it at least, uh, rejected me, I thought, what, what can I do? You know, all my friends are joining the military. I want to fight for my country. Uh, we started to have people walk around with Malcolm X hats on and brown pride and all this other sort of thing. And I, it was making me angry. Um, and I saw, I, I, my perception was that the world was falling apart and I wanted to do something to clean up. I mean, this is LA. Um, you know, and back then, you know, you, we still got have gangs and, and things of that nature, but, for the most part, these type of groups stay in their own little enclaves. Uh, they say that Southern California is this wonderful multicultural melting pot, but 
it's just not the case. Um, yes, we might go in social circles or educational circles or church or something like that. But when people leave those sorts of environments, they go back to their own little world. And um, I was just angry and wanting to do something about it. So, you know, we started to see more um, actual far right white power skinheads in, in the punk scene. And uh, they were sometimes they would be uh, doing bouncing for concerts and, and things like that. And they were very heavy handed. And it was, there was a lot of white power skinheads at that time. Um, yes, I knew about sharps and anti-racist skinheads, but every time I saw the anti-racist skinheads, they were always getting their rear ends handed to them by, by the white power folks, um, especially the Orange County people. We had a lot of, uh, a lot of skinheads from Huntington Beach, Long Beach, who would go into these clubs in, in L.A. and Orange County as well, and they were just beating the hell out of sharps. Um, so I, I attempted to approach them on numerous occasions, and there would be a beer, or we'd have a little bit of political talk, but for whatever reason, they were very um, standoffish, uh, suspicious maybe, now, who are you talking? Are you talking about the sharps? Or are you talking about the the white power people? White power skinheads. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really associate or or try to even speak to the sharps because I just I didn't like them. Right. <laughs> like, it, it, yeah. The story. The story there was very similar to where my own. You know, in that in that sense of of uh, the fighting with the sharps and the anti racists. Yeah, absolutely. But please go on. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I took it upon myself. I, you know, I started ordering uh, newsletters um, in my area. There would be things posted on telephone poles in phone booths when they actually still had phone booths. Right. Um, and there was a number on there and it was for the white air and resistance. And, you know, I called a couple times, listened, read, read the, the newsletter uh, but it got to the point where I was, I felt like I was alone. And I said, well, if I can't get involved through these kids, you know, they weren't kids, but they were a couple years younger than me. I'm going to go to the source. So I drove from uh, Los Angeles area to North County, San Diego to Fallbrook, California, where Tom Metzger was. And, um, you know, I drove around the neighborhood, um, you know, asked around a little bit and people kind of looked at me sideways like, you know, why don't you just look in the phone book? So I did. I looked him up in the phone book and I called his number and lo and behold, who answered the phone but Tom Metzger. And I told him my name. I told him, you know, I wanted to do something for my race. And next thing you know, I'm sitting in his in his parlor and we're talking politics and drinking whiskey. And he's telling me um, the opposite of what my dad would tell me. My dad would tell me you're a drunk, you're a lush, 
get your hair cut. So I got my hair cut and they said, oh my God, what's going on here? Because I went from being a long haired kid to a, having a bald head. And um, he, Tom Metzger told me that he, he saw that I had leadership qualities and that I was a fine specimen as an Aryan warrior and positive affirmations. And I ate it up. Um, and he gave me a card of a, of a local group in Orange County. And I called them up and went out to party with them. And the first night that I was fraternizing with, with these skinheads, you know, nobody told me, oh, you have to get jumped in or it's not like a gang. Uh, we're going to jump you in and blood in blood. None of, none of that. Right. Um, it was pretty much a good time. Um, there was violence and, you know, nobody told me to do it, but I pretty much took initiative to, I guess, prove that I could hold my own. And I was involved with several confrontations uh, one of which, hmm, I don't know if I should, well, I'm going to say it anyhow, was uh, the person who testified against Tom Metzger in the Portland, Oregon trials. Um, he, that was one of the incidents that took place. There was another incident at a nightclub and several others. Um, but from that point forward, I was... I was in, um, you know, I, I found my new tribe mm -hmm. and I felt a part of, and it was us against the world. And even white folks, if, if you were white or Anglo and did not subscribe to the political mindset that I was involved in, you were a traitor straight up. You're just a traitor. You're stupid. Um, your sheeple, all that sort of rhetoric. And um, I ran with it. Un unfortunately, um, I ran with it a little bit too much. And of course, I was drinking at the time. Um, and by this time, as I said, uh, White Air and Resistance was on trial. Um, and I went on a bender. I worked four-day work weeks. So Thursday night was my Friday night. So by the time Friday and Saturday came along, I was already lit. Um, I went to go see a band called the Cro-Mags. And there was protests outside the Cro-Mags concert by the Sharps because they were angry that a local white power skinhead crew was running security for them. Mm. And it turned into a big fight. You know, this is way back, like probably 1985, 86. No, this was 1988. And um, so the Sharps against the white power skinheads is a thing that's been around for a long, long time. Antifa sort of black block tactics and things like that were, were around. It was ARA um, back in those days, remember? Yes. yes. Yep. Anti-racist yep. action. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that weekend, I can't really tell you what happened because I was pretty much lit the whole weekend, but my MO was I would get lit and I would um, commit as much violence against my perceived enemy as possible. Well, 
that whole weekend I was running around with a, with a gun. I had baseball bats. Of course, I had gloves and balls in, in, in my trunk as well, you know, just in case I get pulled over by the cops. Same. I mean, you, nope. you got you to think. Sounds, a lot of this sounds very, <laughs> very familiar to me because, uh, yeah, a lot of the exact same things that you had the bats, but you also had the ball and the glove. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, and, we, and I was told these things by other people. If you're going to run around with, with weapons, you have to uh, make it look legit. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I got home late. Saturday night, uh, woke up Sunday morning, and some of my local friends were telling me, oh, there's, there's going to be a benefit for the homeless concert. And I said, what the hell would I want to go to the benefit for the homeless concert? They said, there's going to be sharps there. So I said, okay. Um, for whatever reason, something in my gut told me, leave the gun at home. And I left the gun at home, but I had the, I had the bats. Um, I think I didn't have the glove or the balls. Took them out of the car. And I went to this benefit for the homeless concert. And, and I ran into some people that I had gone to school with who were on the same path as me. And there was only four of us. Again, this is in the days when a, a few white power people could go in somewhere and just rattle the cage of the enemy and the enemy's going to back down because they always did back then. Nowadays, it's not necessarily the case. Um, so we went to this concert and we went inside and we were sick hiling and goose stepping and, you know, tomorrow belongs to me and all this sort of stuff. We ended up getting kicked out and... Um, we had decided we were going to start our own crew. And so we're going to go and we're going to talk about it. We're going to go get some steaks and some beer and we're going to have a barbecue and we're going to have some camaraderie and we're going to start planning. And when we went to the supermarket and this is um, Memorial day weekend, sunny Southern California, you know, a long holiday, sunny, hot, people everywhere at the supermarket and uh we go into this store and um one of the people that i was with had some sort of an issue with this iranian man this there was an iranian guy with his his uh newborn baby and his wife and words were said looks were exchanged mad dog whatever and we were so drunk that we didn't realize we didn't have enough money to buy beer and steak. So we decided to leave. And as we're leaving, um, this Iranian gentleman jumps in front of my car and he's having words with my passenger. And I had just met this, this guy, this passenger. I had just met him that day. I knew the other two people, but I didn't know him. And I said, dude, come on, let's go. Let's go. He's like twice your size. This is a little tiny guy. He had nothing on but a pair of Dickies shorts and docks up to his knees and no shirt on. And he's a little scrawny dude. But he was, he was a good scrapper. But this guy was big. Um, and I told him, don't, don't do it. Let's get out of here. And the, uh, the Iranian man said something about uh, my passenger's mother. Use your imagination. 
And he said, what do you say about my mother? And he said, you heard me. I said, and he said it to him again. And that was it. This little guy jumps out of my car, tries to kung fu kick this great big Iranian guy. And next thing you know, they're on the ground and um, we're kicking him in the head and he wouldn't let go. He did like a bear hug on my passenger and wouldn't let go. He said, call the police, call the police. And um, so we, we did a boot party on him. Um, I did have baseball bats in my car. I brought the baseball bats out once. And there was a, a man who was watching. And he said, uh, put those bats away. For whatever reason, some, some sort of uh, sense of uh, moment of clarity, I, I put them away. Um, I got them out again. He says, no, I told you to put those bats away. So if I'm not going to use the baseball bats, what else am I going to use? We're in a parking lot of a supermarket. And by this time, there's been a crowd around us. There's, you know, female shoppers um, with big heavy purses hitting us in the head with their purses saying, you, you Nazi bastards, knock it off. Um, at one point, and I don't remember this. But at one point, I picked the shopping cart up above my head like King Kong or whatever, threw it at the crowd. Nobody got hit. They all moved. Um, the Iranian man's wife started shrieking and yelling, make them stop, make them stop. I said, you make them stop. I mean, he's holding on to this guy for no reason. And she went to uh, kick me in the groin area, and I saw red and... I hit her upside the head and she went down and I do remember the crowd going, Ooh, like hearing a bunch of people say, Ooh. And of course in the court proceedings that preceded that or that happened after that was, uh, you know, that was something that was talked about how I hit a woman and I had never really laid my hands on a woman except for one other time. It was a, a lesbian woman who for whatever reason wanted to fight me and, um, so, you know, I'm not proud of, of that. Um, it was odd. Um, it was a blackout, but it was par for the course. That was the kind of things that I did. And Tom Metzger abandoned me. You know, he's on trial. He's trying to keep his hands clean. We don't want to influence anybody. We're under a lawsuit. Um, and I spoke to him on the phone and he said that he was going to distance himself from me. He stated that, um, he, he felt that my drinking could be a security risk. And for me, you know, he was sort of became my next positive male role model so that was devastating for me um but it wasn't like oh you're a lush you're a drunk you're lower than low the same type of stuff that my father would probably have have told me he didn't make it about me personally he made it about the struggle mm. um so i did begin to think more about my alcohol intake 
started to struggle with it a little bit, uh, attempted to quit drinking for some time. Uh, I ended up in jail. I was in jail for a while. Uh, got sober. Um, they didn't have hate crime laws back in those days, but they were attempting to uh, set a precedence for hate crime laws in the state of California. You know, they often say what happens in California is going to spread across the United States at a later date. So it's kind of a testing ground. Um, right. Didn't end up with a hate crime, but uh, I was charged with civil rights violations, uh, race riot, um, you know, assault with a deadly weapon, which was steel toe boots and a shopping cart. Um, but uh, ended up on trial during uh, and mommy and daddy, of course, bailed me out. They put their house up, bailed me out, wow. um, got shipped to another county. We're going to get him out of L.A. County. Maybe we'll get him away from his friends. It didn't get me away from my friends. I just started hanging out with people in the other county, <laughs> um, which right. were just as bad as the people that I was hanging out with in the other county. And in fact, we were all connected in some way. Right. Yep. Um, so when I was out on bail, going through trial, I got uh, another DU. I got a third DUI, um, which was a big wake-up call for me. I ended up quitting drinking, and I've been sober ever since. So I've, I haven't. I've, I've stayed away from substances for a very long time. Um, however, I continued with the far right activities. What was supposed to happen was I ended up going to jail um, for the DUI. And what was supposed to happen was I was supposed to run con concurrent sentences in Los Angeles County and San Bernardino County. But somebody messed up and they let me out for a week between the two sentences. And I didn't have anything, I didn't have anything to lose. So for that week between my uh, jail sentences, I ran around Huntington Beach and Orange County, and that particular um, week was Fourth of July weekend. And um, we were, you know, we had walkie-talkies, we had earpieces, we had weapons hidden all over the place, and we were beating the crap out of people on Fourth of July weekend in Huntington Beach, especially, um, you know, they had some big concert or or something happening at, at Huntington Beach um, but I remember um, you know we knew when the police were coming we planned ahead and we split up and we had changes of clothes and you know the whole the whole nine yards I would like to say it was done with military precision but I've never been in the military so I couldn't tell you that but <laughs> um, clo close you know we did have some people that were in the military um, some of which you might even know. Um, one in particular was TJ. TJ Lydon was with us. He was part of our crew. Um, so I'm not hanging out with Tom Metzger's group. We're no longer called Warskins, but around that same time, uh, we started the Western Hammer Skinheads. We were the first Western Hammer Skinheads crew in Southern California. And then shortly after us was San Diego. So most of the war skins just jumped ship to the hammer skins. And it wasn't the hammer skin nation at that time. It was just hammer skins. Um, 
but I was co-director along with uh, one of my co-defendants from the hate crime. Well, actually, it wasn't a hate crime, but nevertheless. And um, so the whole idea behind that was when I was in jail, somebody else would be able to to handle things while, while I was in jail. I'll tell you, I ended up turning myself in and not one person from my crew visited me, sent me a letter, put money on my books, nothing. So I was, you know, a little bit perturbed about that. And when I ended up getting out of jail, uh, about a year and a half, two years later, uh, they were mad at me because I didn't get out of jail and say, where's my brother's? Um, I was, I was angry, you know, you know, I was sitting in jail and, and you guys write all these letters to POWs and, and things like that. And just cause I'm not a member of the order, you know, doesn't mean you can't put 20 bucks on my books. Um, right. so, I, you know, I had a bit of a resentment, but you know, I came around, um, because that was what I knew, especially yeah. after being in, in uh, what they call supermax here in here in Southern California, it was um, jail in Southern California is different. I mean, I've been in jail and unfortunately in, in all kinds of different states and even countries for that matter. I've been in jail in Germany. Um, oh, wow. I've, I've been in jail in New York City, and um, it's totally different in, in LA County. You, you have you know, a handful of white guys, most of which I referred to back then as a bunch of punks. And then you had a lot of the gangs, the black gangs and the Hispanic gangs. Um, so when I got out, I wanted to be around what I was comfortable around. And I took up the mantle again. And you would think that <clears throat> jail, do, doing time uh, for a what would be considered today a hate crime that uh, one would um, reconsider what they've been doing and sort of change their, their path in life. But what instead happened was I was a victim. I was a victim of the Jewish judge. I was a victim of the, the, the County district attorney who was running for state attorney general, a Jewish guy the Jewish media, uh, the police, you know, I would say, well, they're just Jews. They're just, they're just lackeys of the Jews. And besides, look at this star. It's a star of David, right? Um, so I took on this victim mentality that I had my freedom taken away from me because of my, the color of my skin and because I'm a straight white man and because I want to, you know, because I'm white power basically. And, and so it catapulted me even further into that mindset. Um, it also gave me favor regarding recruits. Mm. Um, you know, a, a lot of people talk about the way that we recruit. They think we stand on the street corners next to, you know, junior high schools and, and like weirdos and, and try to convert these little kids. But Nobody converted me. I mean, I converted myself. Um, most of the people who we recruited came to us. 
yes, I was a, a positive role model. I was sort of a brother figure or a father figure to some of the younger guys. Um, you know, I've had stuff stolen from me from taking in like little street kids or whatever whose families are severely dysfunctional. They don't have a safe place to stay. So I let them stay at my house or whatever. And I've had things stolen um, from me and my family trying to sort of uh, mentor a young person. Now, it sounds great and, and wonderful. Oh, you're mentoring a, a poor kid who's got a bad family life, but there was an ulterior motive as well, yep. um, which that's, that's where the manipulation comes in. Um, that's where the positive uh, – sort of affirmations come in just like Tom Metzger told me, Oh, you're a fine special specimen of an Aryan warrior. And the reason that you're living like this is because, you know, the, the Jews are, you know, holding you back and that victim sort of mentality. I'm um, glad you brought up the victim mentality because I think that's really important when we're looking at cases like this, because a lot of people, they have a different idea of how, a lot of us get involved in this sort of thing and the victim mentality is really a, a huge huge thing in the movement i mean that i mean it was the same thing same thing with me and just about everybody i know that's that's been in this is you get that feeling where you're being victimized that you're a victim of all this and and i'm really glad you you brought that up because I, I think it's really important to for people to understand this this type of thing and and again please continue yeah and you know that's across the board I think, uh, it, it, you know, you could look at um, radicals Islamists, you could look at uh, the far left, you could look at the gang culture. Um, you know, when you have a group of people in that fractured social network, where it's you against them. Yep. Um, and it's they're against the world. Right. And they're holding you back. And the only reason they're holding you back is because they're jealous of your racial purity or whatever, your neighborhood. Um, but um, that, that was something that uh, was very common. Um, what also ended up happening was due to infighting, uh, the yep. hammerskins at least the group that I was associated with, we sort of disbanded. And I guess I had proven myself, you know, I'd gotten sober and I went back to Tom Metzger and he welcomed me with open arms. His trial was over. And this is around the time where the whole leaderless resistance thing was happening. You know, the organizers keep their hands clean and they are not held accountable by anybody else's action because we're a, a group of associates and friends with common goals and common enemies. Um, and so at, at that time, uh, we had several people who back in those days, rather than the Internet, we had call centers. And like the stickers that I talked about earlier, we would plaster them all over the place or we would, you know, with our own money, buy white air and resistance newsletters and distribute them um, either like a paper route or I would stand at the pier during high tourist season at the Huntington Beach Pier and hand out hate literature, which is actually where I met my son's mother. 
um, as I was handing out literature with my boots and all the, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it got to the point where at one time I ran four or five different hotlines. So you had to call, you only had three minutes, right. To, to, to spew out your propaganda. Um, but it got to the point where I had so many, I got tired of doing all these different things. So I just put an extra line in my house. Um, TJ Lydon ended up giving up his, um, due to some issues that he was having in, in his area in the Inland Empire. And so I was running five of these hotlines. And of course, we love to hear ourselves talk as so-called propagandists, right? So I would go on. Some of my messages were like 25 minutes long. Um, and I would, you know, I'd get all the little newspaper clippings and talk about this and talk about that. Um, talk a lot of trash on the Jews, talk a lot of trash on the ADL, talk a lot of trash on uh, the Museum of Tolerance and, and things like that. Um, but for me, you know, I don't know. I think that my recovery from alcoholism uh, played a major role um, in my evolution, I guess, out of that mindset. Uh, there was a lot of things happening. We had a sting operation that happened here in Southern California that I was, I was a part of, but I didn't get busted. All, yeah, a bunch of people that I knew got busted because they had loose lips and, you know, they were going around bragging and doing stupid things. And they had these um, intelligence officers, snitches, whatever. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know if they worked for the ATF or the FBI or, or what. But they weren't on the up and up. But they were going around buying alcohol and steaks and having barbecues at people's houses and talking about doing um, clandestine uh, sort of order type actions. Um, at one point in time, they had us, um, they wanted us to tap the phones of the cartel in Florida and we were going to go in there and kill them and take their money and take their dope and, and we were going to finance the movement with it and it was just too good to be true. And these guys, you know, I don't like to talk too much trash about the feds, but they should have known better. But they actually did end up getting a lot of uh, people busted. But the people who ended up getting busted were um, uniform people. And the people that like to put on Nazi uniforms and collect Nazi memorabilia and, and, and this sort of thing. And for me, that's that's one of the main reasons why I never really got involved with some of the bigger groups you know i was told very early on not to be a part of marches because you're gonna get your pictures taken you get your license plates take pictures taken and and phones tapped and all that sort of stuff but uh it ended up being a, a bad situation but i escaped that very narrowly um at one point we had told people don't don't listen to these people running around with you know, oozy charms around their neck and all this weird stuff. These guys are snitches. I don't know who they are. Um, but they ended up getting involved with the World Church of the Creator, which is something that I was 
that was something that I subscribed to. I was never really involved with the religious stuff or the pagan stuff. Um, and uh, these guys in uh, Costa Mesa, California, which is right by the beach, um, <clears throat> had a big warehouse and it was a, a gym. And from the, I never saw it, but I heard about it. Um, they had rocket launchers hanging from the ceilings, flags and all this other sort of stuff. And they were bringing these youngsters in there and as agent provocateurs, they were telling them, wouldn't it be nice to kill Rodney King? And they said, Oh yeah, that'd be cool. Right away. They're, they're, you know, they're suspect. So there was a lot of people that were charged for that sort of thing. But when I found out about that, I actually called the, um, the leader of the World Church of the Creator. I forget his name, but he was the interim guy right after Ben Klassen died. He was based out of Florida. I don't remember his name. But he, I called him up and I told him what was going on. And, and he said, um, uh, you, you and Metzger out there in California think there's a Fed behind every tree. And I told him, well, you know, there might be. Um, and right. this guy is operating under your banner and if something goes down it's on you and then he went on to tell me oh well reverend we call him santa claus and this guy went by the name of joe allen and he said um well reverend joe allen has contributed a lot of money to to our organization and i told him you mean that's all it takes to get into your organization is to is to give you a bunch of money or you're that stupid, you're that desperate. Um, right. And it ended up being, you know, I actually went to this man, this Reverend Joe Allen's house and he said, oh yeah, I'm a Reverend uh, of the World Church of the Creator. And so I started quizzing him on the doctrine and he didn't know anything about it. I looked at his books and they hadn't even been touched. This guy had uh, glass tables everywhere. And first thing I'm thinking is fingerprints, you know, uh, rocket launchers, all, all this sort of stuff. And this is beachfront property in Newport Beach. And I asked him, I said, how much, how much rent do you pay here? And he said, $400 a month. And I'm like, and this is, you know, <laughs> no way. Yeah, this is like 1992, 1993, 94. And um, I, I knew that something wasn't right. And um, so I, I told him, I said, I don't know who you are. But you're a snitch. You're 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 not on the up and up, and of course they did one of these things. You know, well, whoever told you I was a snitch, they're a snitch, and and so I spread the word, but it it just didn't work, and a lot of people got, you know, taken down because of that. Yeah, there was a person that I knew in a wheelchair, who was paralyzed from the waist down due to a gangland style shooting, who actually got pulled into this. There was other people that got pulled into it that I. You know, they say loose lips sink, sink ships, but I mean, the, some of the people that ended up getting sucked into this thing were people that I knew knew better. They knew better. I remember when that when those arrests happened, because it was around the exact same time in Minnesota that uh, we were approached with the basically the same MO. They came to us and they said they had, uh, you know, things that go boom and you know I, I don't even want to say it you know but this the same the same exact mo because i remember reading about 
that in the newspaper and seeing that happen. And we were approached at the same time. And I was really young. I was in right in the beginning of the, of the time I was involved. And uh, the head of the organization at that time, I mean, he, he sniffed it out, you know, right away. And uh, he was like, nope, 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 we're not interested in that. I'm like 19, about that, about that age. And I'm hearing this, you know, this guy saying, hey, we have all these things. And I'm sitting there with my eyes wide open going like, whoa, how cool is that? Not that I was going to actually go do something, but I thought it would be cool to have these things at that time. And, and that was a lesson learned. I mean, had it not been um, in our organization, the organization that I was a part of, the NSM, the guy that was running it had served with Commander Rockwell. So he had all this experience for years and years and was able to you know, see those type of things. Me being 19 years old or about that age at the time, I just thought, oh, wow, this guy that's coming around offering these things is really cool and really nice, you know, and naivety. But, yeah, I, I remember that that very well. Just out of curiosity. Yeah. It, it might have been <laughs> if it's right around the same time, if they're all kind of stemming from the same thing. But I just had a question for you real quick, Tom. Like, over the course of, like, all of these things. And like you said, a lot of times people are like, oh, well, that would have opened my eyes and I would have been like, you know what, I'm done with this. Whereas it can also have the opposite effect like it did with you. It just kind of reinforced what you already believed and what you already thought. And, you know, it reinforces that victim mindset. Now, as the years went on and then like as this is happening and you're seeing different people getting picked up for, you know, entrapment and whatnot. Did it ever cross your mind that maybe I shouldn't be doing this or maybe something's not quite right? Or were you still too much enveloped in that echo chamber and that bubble? And like, this is just what you do. For, for me, I stayed involved, but I was much more careful. And um, this is when I was doing, this is when I really, subscribe to the leaderless resistance uh, motto and, and MO because um, I knew it would keep me safe too. And, um, you know, the small cell, if you have more than three people and you get snitched on, well, you know, it's one of those other two people. Right. Um, but for me, I think the catalyst for me as far as my exit plan was – I started to make decent money and it wasn't because of what I knew. It was because of who I knew. I worked in the industrial petrochemical industry and it was one of the former Tom Metzger's former clan members that was the boss. And oh. so at one time we had like 12 skinheads on the job and this is during the riots, you know, we're being shot at at oil refineries we're ha literally having to drive through riot zones to get home back to the nice wonderful leafy suburbs um but my son's mother wanted to she said let's get out of southern california this is cesspool let's get out of here we, we don't want to raise our child in this sort of environment he's going to end up being a race mixer or something and um, so, you know, I made enough money uh, and I moved out of state. However, where I moved to, there was a lot of Ku Klux Klan activity. Um, the first mile marker sign into the state and county where I lived 
was adopt a highway by the Ku Klux Klan. Um, but I never, you know, I did have associates that lived there or at least had homes there. Um, but for me, you know, I was used to making a decent amount of money. You know, I would, I would fly to San Francisco every weekend or fly home from San Francisco every weekend and fly back. That's how much money I was making. Um, but I just couldn't, I couldn't make that kind of money where, where I was living in the Ozark mountains. So I, I had to travel for work even more. And, um, the contrast between what I experienced in, you know, the central part of the United States, the Gulf States, the down South, um, you know, most people in like, say, California or the Eastern seaboard, they think the South is, you know, bunch of Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, there's some of that. But for the most part, I was treated with um, kindness and, and respect by my perceived enemy. And then I would go home and these people are talking about race war. Um, you know, we're stockpiling weapons because the Russians are coming, you know, that, that sort of mentality. And I just didn't see it. It was it, the, when, when you go from being two months in that environment and then three months out of that environment, it, it's the contrast is just clear as day. Yep. And um, it, it got to the point where I was um, starting to see things in a different way. There was uh, rhetoric and, and lies, basically, propaganda that was negative propaganda that was being disseminated, but I didn't see it. And I started to, as my son's mother would probably call, I started to get soft. And uh, we were no longer compatible. You know, um, she found herself another skinhead guy that looked just like me, but like 10 years younger than me. She was quite a lot younger than me too, by the way. I just thought I'd bring that up. Sus <laughs> she, was up she was of suspect age. Um, but, uh, you know, the things we do. Um, but we were just no longer compatible. And I continued to travel for work. We split up. Um, I did travel with um, somebody who is, and I lived with actually in that same area, was somebody who is a part of the Metzger clan. Um, literally, like not the clan, the clan, but like family. Um, and, you know, uh, we were both, I could tell that we were both changing as far as the skinhead thing goes. You know, we get a little bit older. It goes from, uh, you know, boots and braces to cowboy hats and belt buckles. Um, and I continued to travel with that person uh, probably for about a year. And uh, I ended up in the front range area in Colorado working. Uh, started, I went to a couple punk type things, but you know, I, the punk thing just doesn't, uh, I don't know. I like the, I like the concerts, but I don't necessarily like the music. I, I like the vibe. I like the, you know, on edge sort of thing. Um, right. but I started hanging out with, and there was a lot of former skinheads in the rockabilly scene. Yep. 
for whatever reason. I don't know why. I don't know if it's a white thing or if it's a Confederate flag thing. Um, but, you know, I didn't hide my my past. I, I was still sort of in that transitional period where I'm learning how to trust my perceived enemy. Gay people was one. Uh, black people was another one. Um, and just people in general were more interested to hear my story than they were to condemn me. Mm -hmm. And uh, a buddy of mine who, who is from England, who lives in your state, actually, um, now, uh, we hung out quite a bit. And he, you know, he was from England. And I don't know if it's got something to do with the skinhead thing or a lot of English people in the rockabilly scene. And uh, we were hanging out and we ended up going on a double date with these two redhead girls. And I have a thing for redheads. So uh, <laughs> um, we went on this double date and I hit it off with, with this gal and um, started to get really serious. And one evening she told me, she says, um, you know, I'll, before we take things any further, I want you to know now th she's from Texas with a Southern twang and the whole nine yards. She says, I hope, you know, I'm Jewish. Do you have a problem with that? And I'm like, what are you talking <laughs> about? There ain't no Jews in Texas. <laughs> How ignorant was I? Right. <laughs> you know, my, my perception of Jews was shekels and money bags and diamonds and oive and Hasidic Jews and New York and all, all that kind of stuff. Not hi, how the hell are y'all? <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, it's odd. Now, now she, 21 she knew the, your, oh, yeah. that your past before that. Hence the reason she's like, hey, you know, I need to tell you this part before we go any further. Um, did you think that she was trying to pull one over on you when she actually said that or that she was trying to joke around or did you, could you tell she was like really serious and you're just still like, wait a minute, there's no way this is possible. It's funny how you say that because I know people whose family have told them, well, you know, we have Jewish in our heritage just to get them to think in a different way. Right. Um, <clears throat> she's not a religious Jew, but she's definitely Jewish. Um, but uh, I kind of planted one on her and jumped in my car and drove away like a little like a little boy, and, <laughs> and I'm telling my I'm telling my buddy I'm all, mate I I can't believe it, he says what I said she's a Jew, I kissed a Jew, <laughs> and he thought it was he thought it was funny um, he laughed he says so how was it then mate, and uh, you know. Getting out of my comfort zone uh, has always been something that even up to that point, I mean, I was consciously getting out of my comfort zone. Like right. when I was traveling for work, there would be people that I was working with who were, you know, Hispanic or whatever, who treated me well, who treated me like a human being. And the way that, that I respond to people is if you treat me with respect, I'm going to yep. treat you with respect. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it's a trip. It's a, it's a, it's a strange thing. Um, 
you know, other people have said, oh, it's divine intervention or whatever. I don't know if I believe all that, but it's definitely uh, been a trip. And I'll tell you, the biggest part about getting out of my comfort zone was when she wanted me to go to a synagogue with her. And I sat in the back and they were doing all the stuff that they do, all the ritualistic stuff. It reminded me a lot of Catholics. Um, but um, the service was way too long and way too uncomfortable for me. So what I would do, you know, she started spending all day Saturday with these people and my wife's gone all day. And, you know, I started to get hungry around four o'clock. So I started to go very late. You know, mama's not cooking me dinner. Oh, this poor big boob old man like me. You know, where's my dinner, mama? And uh, so uh, I, I went, I would show up late. And one of the things that they did is they would all sit down after all the things that they did and eat a bunch of food. And I tell you, I've learned more about Judaism and Jewish people as individuals and, and people as human beings by breaking bread with them than I would going to a synagogue and having to, I mean, I'm not going to sit in the church for four or five hours. I'm not going to go to a synagogue for four or five hours. Right. It was just too much for me. Um, but <clears throat> it was, you know, it's, it's been there. We've had our ups and downs. Um, the, the main thing is, it's really funny because she's all into like this, uh, English punk rock type stuff like 1970s, early 1980s, oi type music. And I just, I don't, it's just, it's odd, it's odd to me, but I I just, I've had it up to here with oi, you know, Um, I don't want to hear that stuff all the time, except for, you know, there's a couple bands that I I like, but we still, you know, we go out, uh, we go, go to concerts from time to time. Um, and what I mentioned earlier about the whole skinhead thing and, and how the white power skinheads used to go to concerts and bust people's heads. It's not like that anymore. Right. Um, they will have their butts handed to them these days. It's just not put up with, I have seen it, you know, uh, there's people that I know are in, still in that sort of mindset, but they don't open up their mouths in, in public, especially at a, at a concert type, setting because they know the crowd will will turn on them yeah it's a, it is a different, definitely a different uh scene uh these days for sure absolutely so i mean what's really interesting and, uh, and fascinating about your story too is that um it the the fact that people gave you a chance and and saw you as as a human being and showed you respect and showed and and that way you were able to hear and understand them i think is a real testament to the power of change and and uh and and the importance of dialogue really um would you would you say that uh would now was that the moment you you'd say that that you were completely done with uh with the thinking of the movement is when you when you fell in love with this uh uh with this young lady or or was it some was it before then or or how how do you feel uh as far as that goes well when i met my current wife i was probably about four years into my disengagement and most of that disengagement had to do with the traveling for work and and meeting people of, of different various backgrounds um once i was married to her 
I got called out on, on some things from time to time. Um, there's still some things that, um, I don't know if, if you would call it racist, but there's, when you've been indoctrinated to the level that I have or we have, there's still some, I don't know, triggers, I guess you could call them. Um, driving is one of my, uh, especially in Southern California, um, is a, a hard one for me. When I get behind the wheel of a car, I'm at war, <laughs> um, especially in, in Los Angeles traffic. I was just going to say, I think Southern California and LA especially does that to anyone. <laughs> I yes. mean, it, it is, the traffic there is ridiculous. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, there's been, back in my past, I would say, well, if it wasn't for all these non-whites on the road, right, I would have a nicer ride to work every day. It doesn't matter that I'm driving to the Museum of Tolerance, you know, <laughs> or, or that I've just gotten done doing a presentation uh, uh, about, racism at the museum of tolerance i'm driving home now i still get those little those little triggers that make me want to go off um you know it's it's something that happens i think the the main thing for me is that uh i'm aware of it and i and i know where it comes from and i know that my thoughts are not my actions mm -hmm. and i think for and it, I mean, I've been out since I consider nine, 1996 my exit, you know, date or whatever. Um, it wasn't conscious. It was something that happened. Um, it was about a three or five year process for me. But for younger or newer formers, I think one of the, the biggest issues is when somebody gets triggered, uh, it goes into this cycle of guilt and remorse and they throw their hands up and say, oh, well, I'm just a racist. I'm going to go back to, to what I know or to what I'm comfortable with. Or they get guilty and they get down on themselves and they get involved with substance abuse, uh, suicidal ideation, suicide attempts. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest, and I think we've spoken about this privately, is that one of the biggest pitfalls of CVE and dealing with former extremists is the actual resources that's given to them is, is not, it's not sufficient. It, it needs to be something that's followed through on. It's not something that you say, okay, I got you out. I'm going to put a notch on my belt and put your name on a wall. And now you're out. It doesn't happen like that. Um, I don't know if I would call it a relapse like in the recovery world, um, but it is, you know, those are some of the resources that are needed, um, whether it's family therapy, whether it's um, therapy, family therapy, whether it's drug and alcohol counseling or mental health services of some sort or employment, help with employment. Um, yeah. there, there needs to be, a tighter network of resources and and at the inception of the whole cve thing when it first started back well 
I call it in 2011 when we had the summit against violent extremism, that was one of the main goals was to have this network of resources in people's areas. But the, one of the biggest problems is, of course, financial resources is, is something that's an issue. And I'm sure you know, running your own nonprofit organization, it's tough. You know, this is not Europe where you, where you get the same sort of fundings. You don't get that sort of funding here that, that you do in Europe. It's, it's the, the grants, everybody's in competition over the grant money, and we should not be in competition. All these different nonprofit organizations dedicated to disengagement and, and dealing with violent, former violent extremists, we need to be working together, not against one another. I would rather have exactly. one large organization than five smaller organizations. Oh, yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that. And I was just thinking about it as you were talking is that like uh, Jeff and I were just talking the other day and we were talking to somebody else. And I was mentioning that that is one of the things with like Beyond Barriers and a couple other organizations that we work with is that you have a lot of like preventing violent extremism and countering violent extremism sphere. You have disengagement or de-radicalization uh, programs, but a lot of times, and I, I wrote an article kind of about it, explaining it was that it's, you mentioned um, like rehabilitation and stuff like that. Like it's like when somebody comes out of a movement or an extremist uh, thing like this, it's kind of like you take a, a drug addict out of the drug house. You go, you pick them up, you drag them out, you get them clean. It's great, you know, pat them on the back. You know, you got them clean. You give them the keys to an apartment and you say, okay, see you later. Good luck. Now try to acclimate into real life. And it just, it doesn't happen. Like it's for somebody like Jeff that was in it for 27 years. And you even mentioned it too. Like that's all you know. That's your entire world. These are the people that you know. That's all you know. And that was one of the things with Beyond Barriers that we really wanted to do was be able to have something that doesn't just pull you out of an extremist movement and leave you hanging. Like one thing that uh, I know we have, uh, Ed, that's a part of the group that does the prison outreach side of things. He was radicalized, if I I'm remembering this correctly, Jeff, he was radicalized in prison. So that became like his survival thing. And one of the things that he does, it's not just for those that come out of like a white supremacist or a white nationalist movement. It's also those that just come out of prison and need the basic resources to get health insurance, to get back up on their feet, you know, just your basic resources. So it's kind of like a catch all, I guess you could say, but I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, we've got to work together. It's saving lives should not be a competition. Yeah, exactly. It should not be an industry either. Right. Precisely. 
And it, and it exactly. is an issue here in the United States, you know, and I'm glad you pointed that out too. I mean, we are, I mean, we're operating on literally a shoestring budget, at, um, but we are working with, um, we just finished on a, on a contract and I can't get into the details, but we just finished on a contract with um, an, another group that's working directly with the government that are going to be presenting some things to policymakers and things like that. So we hope through that and through some of our work there that, um, you know, more opportunities open up because, um, and it's like a, another uh, one of the people that we've helped uh, leave the movement, some, a lady that was in the National Socialist Movement, uh, along with myself, left after I did. She said, you know, we should have something that's a little bit like Alcoholics Anonymous, but for formers, you know, something is where, where a lot of the people can get together and, and talk and things like that. And it's, it's a support network. And it's, it's not, it's not just, just as you said, I just want to echo it is basically, you know, you, it's not just about pulling somebody out, but it's, it's offering that support network too, and, and having something that's there for them um, when they get out. So they don't relapse. And, and I think that's a good way of explaining it because in, in some ways, and I, I've seen it with some of the people um, we've worked with already too, is that when certain things trigger them, what, whether it's what's going on, uh, I can say right now, like with the rioting and things like that, for a lot of people, especially the newer ones that are out, that is a real trigger. Like they look at that and they say, this is what we said was coming. And, and they're, they're looking to us for advice to keep them calm, to, you know, uh, keep peaceful and things like that. And, and, um, I mean, that's one of the, I mean, it's fulfilling on one, in one sense because you know that you're helping those people. But on the other sense, it, it's worrisome too, you know, because, you know, we want to make sure these people uh, stay put. And, and uh, for, the, for the most part, I've seen when people leave, they stay out. But there's been one or two that I've seen kind of relapse and go back that, uh, you know, I I haven't given up on them, but, um, you know, you do see that and it, it's something that that's concerning and, and I really hope we can, uh, we can all continue to, you know, they, that these people know that there is people out there that understand them, that we've been there, we've walked in their shoes and, and, um, you know, reach out to Tim, reach out to myself, Acacia, or any of the other uh, people that are out there that have been in those shoes and, and, you know, we are here to help. And uh, to piggyback on that, there actually is a Formers Anonymous group. Um, you know, I've read some of their literature, um, but I've never attended any of their sort of groups or anything like that. But it does exist. But it, I, I believe, my perception is that it's very, very small. And it's not exclusive to far right. There's former gang members and whatnot also involved. One of the things that um, the Museum of Tolerance uh, has or used to have and sometimes still do, if somebody gets you know, charged with a hate crime or something of that nature, um, part of their rehabilitation and Part of their probation is sometimes they have to come to the Museum of Tolerance and they'll come and they'll see my presentation uh, or they'll meet with a Holocaust survivor or they'll, or they'll do a tour. Um, the only problem that I have with that is, again, there's no follow-up um, yep. to see where they're going, you know, six months down the road, a year down the road, a lot can happen in, in that short period of time. Somebody could be triggered, 
um, from the smallest little thing. And then they just went, once they go start going down that, that path, um, they don't know how to put the brakes on. And, and it is similar to uh, recovery. Um, I've, I have had uh, sociologists and psychologists contact me and they, and they want to, well, they want to come up with a, is, is racism an addiction? Well, I don't know if racism is an addiction, especially since it's all over the world, all different ethnic groups. Um, I think it's a, a, a human development situation for, for a lot of people. Um, you know, for me, what, what I've seen, my belief is that most people, and, and this, of course, does not uh, include you, <laughs> um, but most people in their late 20s, early 30s is where they start to look around. And it's the same time when most people end up in recovery because of whatever, whether they've gotten out of prison, whether they've gotten a divorce, whether um, they've had some sort of traumatic experience happen. Um, that's usually human developmentally speaking is when most people sit back and say, Oh my God, what have I done with my life? I have right. a kid. Um, I have to be responsible for this child. Um, I can't hang out with the, with the brothers anymore. I can't hang out with my Aryan sisters anymore. Um, because it's a bad influence on my child. Um, in, in your case, Jeff, um, you know, I, I watched you over the years and in my, my perception was that you, you didn't know any, you didn't know how to, it's all you knew. It's all you knew. And this is the way it is, and it's going to stay this way. And I, I've I've seen you in situations where you're supposed to be the big bad wolf, right? And your perceived enemy is treating you with respect as a human being. Yep. And you took that upon board, and, and it, it penetrated your armor or your facade. And for, for those people who deal with uh, counter-violent extremism or dealing with formers, um, the best way to approach people is on a human level. Yep. Yep. Um, Thank you. Yes. That, that's the only way it's going to happen, at least for me. Um, you know, there are exceptions. There are people who go to their grave. Um, and we know some of them uh, with with that. Um, I wouldn't say hate in their heart, uh, but definitely angst and noise. All the noise. Um, some people thrive on the drama and the noise. And uh, again, you know, you get to a certain age, and you just don't want the drama anymore. Exactly. Too much. And for for different people, it's different things. But but like you said, and that's exactly that's exactly what helped me get out. And that's the main tactic that, uh, or the main approach. I don't know, tactics probably not a good word. But for me, uh, one of the things I've said about being out of the movement that this is civilian life. So learning civilian life is 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 um, you know what I'm doing. And uh, for a lot of people, because you know in 
in my mind, you know, I was at war with the whole world, with the system, with all the other races, with half the white race, all this sort of thing. But it was that human connection, that, that compassion, that empathy, that dialogue, and that, that uh, you know, using dialogue, that's, that's the main approach that, that we use with Beyond Barriers to reach other people, too, is, is showing them that respect, listening to them, even if their ideas and, and perceptions are ugly and hateful and things like that, giving them that respect to listen gives us a doorway open to for them to listen to us and that's that's how you know that's how I was reached by uh you know that's part of my story so um you know it's it's incredible what it can do if if you just have a little compassion and empathy for people go ahead sorry to interrupt no I was just gonna say it's it's interesting listening to both of you guys because I was involved for a much shorter period of time And, you know, we'll get into my story another day, but it's interesting because it's like one thing you mentioned, Jeff, was that, you know, it, it was all you knew. That was all you knew. And then for you, it was, you knew life outside of it for the most part. You got, you didn't wake up one day and decide, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. It was more of a gradual progression for you with, work and having to travel, being around other people than just your own little clique. And so it's like, for me, most of my life was civilian life or whatever. It was around people of all different races, around everybody. But then when I got involved and, you know, the racism wasn't even a part of it, that just kind of comes later. And, um, and you mentioned it earlier, you, you said, you know, you, you become indoctrinated without even realizing it a lot of times. That's kind of how it was for me. But so for majority of my life, I was in the normal and the civilian life. And then for a couple of years, I didn't realize it until I got away from it, that I pretty much closed myself off to regular civilian life to the anything outside of the movement, I had completely blocked myself off of. And I did not realize that until I got out and until I started, like, completely cut myself off from everything. And then I'm like, wait a minute, hold up here. Where are all these friends that I did have? And then I'm I'm thinking back, and I have mentioned it to Jeff before, and it's like, I completely closed myself off. And so then when you become an involved in whether it's a cult, a religious cult, a political, you know, I would be half tempted to call the movement a cult in its own sense. Um, you, you close yourself off from everything else without even realizing it. And until you're able to disengage, like you said, you know, Tim, your, your disengagement period started before you actually realized that you had gone away from it, I guess. And I know I'm rambling, but I just, I thought it was really interesting how when you become involved in a movement of any sort, a lot of times that becomes your echo chamber and your bubble. And a lot of times you don't, it happens as a progression and you don't even realize exactly what's going on until you're able to move away and get out of it. Distance is uh, great. Thing when, when once you find yourself out, it's like oh wow, I can't believe yeah. I was a part of that. 
yeah, yeah. it's it's really it's it's really interesting and and for me it was the same way it was like the things that you didn't see when you were there all of a sudden click and it's like wow and it all comes together so in some ways quickly in other ways I, I called it like a decompression period where like the brain had to decompress itself and um, then you start figuring out wow why did I spend so many years doing this and, and you start beating yourself up over it and then you just start figuring out now it's time to move on with the with my life and yeah it's, it's quite a process I did want to ask you too uh, you mentioned the Museum of Tolerance a couple times and our, our good friends from the Simon Wiesenthal Center um, Tell us a little bit about some of the some of the work you do there and, and the wonderful work we've we've had uh, we had uh, Rick Eaton and Allison uh, Slovin uh, uh, Rick of course you know from California and Allison's the Midwest director we had them on the show a number of weeks back and and uh, they're both just phenomenal people and they've they've been uh, really uh, they're good friends of Beyond Barriers good friends of ours uh, personally and and. Uh, I think it's important to give a shout out to them and, and um, tell us a little bit about the work you do with them. Uh, well, <clears throat> it's strange because I never thought I would have anything to do with those people. Um, there was a friend of mine uh, who I mentioned earlier, TJ Lydon, who I was in the same crew with, who left the movement and he went straight to the Museum of Tolerance. And of course, we considered him a traitor and we put a price on his head and I've even sat outside his home, you know, locked and loaded uh, shortly thereafter. Um, but I always liked TJ. Um, I liked what he had to say when he was involved with the, with the movement, and I liked what he had to say afterwards. Um, I always followed his career once he, once he disengaged, and my wife would always elbow me whenever we would see him uh, on television and she would elbow me she said you could do that you could do that you could do that and i said i could never do that and here i've been sitting with you and you can't shut me up half the time <laughs> but um once i moved back here to california um he was speaking at a local event and i went to go see him speak and i was sitting between my mother ironically, and my wife, and of course, I got the elbow from both sides. Why don't you do that? Why don't you do that? And he said, during his presentation, he had been at the museum for about five years. And he said that he was uh, leaving the Museum of Tolerance, he was going to start his own nonprofit organization. And so he was leaving. And I asked him afterwards, um, if he thought that the Museum of Tolerance would be interested in taking me on after he left. He says, I don't know. And he, he gave me a card and I called Rick. And of course, Rick was Rick. Um, he, he was very uh, matter of fact. He was, um, he didn't say yes or no. Um, he said, come on in and have a chat with us. And I ended up going in and, and having a chat and I, I guess, you know, they were asking me all kinds of questions, him and, a, and a, another partner of his there. And they were asking me all these questions about all these people. And it's like, I didn't have a lot of the answers regarding the other people. I could only tell him, you know, my own uh, experiences and stories. I didn't really like talking about other people. Um, that's just not, that's not my deal. That's probably why I'm still 
amongst the living, maybe. Um, but he said, I don't know, we'll, we'll keep you on the back burner. We'll know in a little bit. And probably two or three months later, I get a frantic call and he says, uh, TJ isn't able to make the schedule for this school group that he wanted me to speak at. And they bamboozled me into doing this thing. I had never spoken in front of a bunch of little rugrats. <laughs> and um, I ended up doing two assemblies back to back, very, very large groups. Um, you know, they helped me with the PowerPoint and gave me pointers on how to, how to proceed with my presentation. And uh, I've been there ever since. I've been there, I don't even know how long, um, 16, 17 years, something, something wow. to that effect. Wow. Uh, I speak to law enforcement occasionally. I speak to educators. I speak to uh, judicial people. Um, I do a presentation, you know, COVID has made things a little bit more difficult, um, but generally every Friday I, I speak at the Museum of Tolerance and I do travel um, for presentations uh, outside of the state, outside of the country. Um, but of course with COVID, they've sort of put a, a damper on, on those sort of things. However, I don't mind, I really don't mind doing uh, this sort of forum um, because it's from the comfort of my home and uh, right. I can put a nice background up and you don't have to see my messy kitchen behind me. Right. And, um, but it's, it's very uh, rewarding it, through, throughout my working with the Museum of Tolerance. I've met other people such as uh, TM Garrett. Of course, there's other formers that I've been involved with and, and, and now with you. I don't ha I'll work with anybody who's on the same page. Um, yep. I think it's really, really important. And I'm happy that the Museum uh, of Tolerance and the Simon Wiesenthal Center has kept me as long as they have. Uh, and that they are also reaching out to uh, other formers as well. Um, you know, during, during my stint at the Museum of Tolerance, uh, there came a time where I was doing a presentation and there was another gentleman there who um, he had a school group he wanted to talk about and um, we started, you know, talking and talking about where we were raised, where we hung out. And it turns out long before I was even involved with the far right uh, before I was a skinhead, when I was still a scrawny little punker, um, me and my Nazi punk friends uh, left him unconscious in an alley. And 25 years later, he ends up working at the Museum of Tolerance. So we we did a uh, we did presentations together. We still do presentations together from time to time. He's no longer with the Museum of Tolerance. Um, but he does still speak. And uh, had it not, it's, had it not been for the environment at the Museum of Tolerance, uh, I don't think that I would have lasted as, as long. And it has also given me the opportunity to make amends to this, to this man who I left for dead in the alley. I thought he was dead. Um, and, uh, you know, we're friends today. He's, a, he's gay. 
Um, not that that makes any difference, but that I think that played a major role in the attack that took that I took part in. Um, you know, when I was 17 years old. So when I was 17 years old, I had that mindset. And um, you know, the Museum of Tolerance. One of the one of the things that I like the most about the Museum of Tolerance is number one, yes, it gets me out of my comfort zone on a regular basis. You know, it's not just I can't just act one way away from the Museum of Tolerance and another way in in the workplace. I mean, right. I, I try to apply it to every facet of my life. I apply it to my marriage. I apply it to my my family relations, which is really difficult at times. Um, but for me, w when I'm when a, a former comes to the Museum of Tolerance, and I can't get through to them. And it does happen from time to time. You just, for whatever reason, they don't trust me. They think I'm a fraud. Um, they, you know, who's this dude telling me what I need to think? I sick a Holocaust survivor on them. And when I say sick a Holocaust survivor, they're not shaking their fingers at them. No. Nope. They're loving on them. And I don't know if you've ever experienced it or not, but there's several. Holocaust survivors, very elderly, and it's very important that we bring this up because they're not going to be around forever. I mean, a lot of them are very, very elderly. When they give you a hug, it's there's uh, I've never felt so much compassion from anybody else. When they hug on you, when they love on you, uh, it's real, um, and and that's one of the main reasons why I, if I can't get through to somebody here yep. and I've had kids come to me, they were all hard. And then afterwards you see them come out of the room with this Holocaust survivor and they're got tears rolling down their face. I don't know what they said to them. Um, it's none of my business. Uh, but they definitely uh, have had an impact on me and others as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm at the, I'm at the museum generally minus COVID every Friday and other times if need be. That's Thank really you cool. so much for sharing that. Um, as a, it, it was incredible having you on the show, Tim. Thank you so much for coming. And, and uh, if there's anything either of you uh, would like to say, closing out the program tonight, uh, we can do that. Otherwise. Uh, I appreciate you coming on, Tim. Very, very much appreciate it. And, you know, appreciate your insights and everything. And I know, you know, we'll be in contact more. I mean, we're all in this together. I know I've said that before and even more so now than I think ever, like we got to come together and it's, it's pretty amazing seeing how, you know, I think a lot of people forget we all have a past. Not all, all of them are as colorful as other ones. But we all have a past and we're all able, your past doesn't have to be your present and you're living proof of that. Thank you very much. That, that's important too, because, you know, uh, it is real hard to doing what we do to tell somebody your your past especially if they've already met you and they're already sort of enjoying your personality and then you come up with oh by the way i used to be a high fiver and that's my word for for former white racist 
uh, yeah, I used to be a racist, da 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 da, da. and um, a, lo a lot of people are very, they just can't, they just can't imagine me being uh, thuggish, I guess, uh, I guess that's the best way to put it. Um, thank you for, for having me on. Um, feel free to contact me, um, and I'm sure you'll post it on, the, when you yeah, post it on the web. Yeah, I can... I can put uh, your, if you'd like, I'll put your link in your Twitter information and stuff on there and people can contact you. And also feel free to contact the Museum of Tolerance as well. Yes. Thanks for That's having me, guys. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. I'm going to hit stop. It.